I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Jim, I, I, I'm not one to boast, but this podcast is a pretty good get. We're speaking to one of the leading thinkers of our time. Francis Fukuyama, who first became famous at the end of the Cold War for his essay, The End of History, which predicted that Western liberalism and democracy would be on an upward trend with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today, Jim, we live in a very different time, and that's really the subject of our show. Identity, the demand for dignity, and the politics of resentment. Francis Fukuyama. I would say 50 years ago, the average white person in the United States didn't think to himself or herself, I'm a white person, I'm part of this group here. Whereas now that has seeped into the rhetoric of the white nationalists and the alt-right, that whites are a victimized category, that they've been marginalized by all of these other minorities that have been pushing for advantages. If you look at our politics, it's built around anger. You know, you don't get elected to office unless you are capitalizing on some form of anger. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, today we're going to talk about what the hell is going on out there. You mean, you mean out in the world? Yeah. I mean, politics in the U.S. just gets crazier by the minute. But it's not just here. Right. I just got back from Europe where you've got authoritarian-style political parties popping up all over. There was a recent election in Sweden where the far right did well. Countries like Hungary and Turkey seem to be sliding towards dictatorship. And there's also the mess over Brexit. Yeah, and which is amazing because for almost 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, it seemed like the world was moving toward liberal democracy. Now it's all going in the other direction. What happened? Our guest today has some answers, but sadly, I was not able to ask the questions, Jim, because I was away in Amsterdam, and you got the chance to speak alone with Francis Fukuyama. Well, it wasn't easy, but with the help of our producer, Miranda Schaefer, I persevered, and Richard, we'll have you back at the end of the show to discuss some of the findings. Uh, Francis Fukuyama is a political scientist who teaches at Stanford University and has served in the U.S. State Department. He's the author of quite a few books on democracy and society, and his most recent book is Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. We're speaking at the offices of his publisher in Lower Manhattan. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you very much. So I want to start with the question right at the top. Mm -hmm. What is identity? 
I think that every one of us has a feeling that we have an inner self and that oftentimes that inner self is not respected by other people. And uh, because we're human beings, we really demand that other people recognize that inherent dignity that we have. And that's the driver of a lot of politics. But it's also the basis of nationalism. I think actually a lot of what passes for religion is actually a kind of cry for identity, that we want to be respected as Muslims, let's say, that are being you know, harmed all over the world, and we need to stand up for ourselves. Because normally when you say you know, respect, dignity, those sound like good things. How do they get twisted into something that's problematic? Well, they are good things. I think that in the United States, for example, what we call identity politics started from all the big social movements, these important social movements for civil rights, feminism, the LGBT movement. All of these were marginalized groups that were not taken seriously by the rest of society or disrespected, despised. I think that they get problematic, however, when you start emphasizing the way in which your identity makes you different from other people rather than emphasizing what you hold in common with fellow citizens. In your career, you've covered this long sweep of a change in, in, in our politics since the mid-20th century, and it's, it's not just a matter of style. You know, people often talk about, like, well, that's just Trump being Trump. But you're really saying it's a deep change in how we think about politics and how we view ourselves as citizens. Mm-hmm. You say, rather than build solidarity around large collectives such as the working class— politicians began to focus on ever smaller groups that found themselves marginalized in specific and unique ways. No, that's right. I think that's been the tendency of identity politics to focus on ever smaller groups. And so, you know, you had gays, and then you had gays and lesbians, and then you had gays and lesbians and trans people. And and now you've got to fit in the non-binary. And every week, it seems there is another... Sexual uh, identity, right. Yeah, narrower definition, but you have to be very, very careful to get it right when you're talking to people. No, that's right. And I think, you know, you can understand why that happens, but you can also understand why people get a little frustrated with that because these are categories that most people had never even heard of before, and now they're told that this is, you know, the the most important justice, social justice issue that they have to deal with, and they're being insensitive for not being aware of it. And I think that 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 kind of rhetoric has really given rise to anti-political correctness. That's all of what Donald Trump is. He loves violating norms of political correctness, and I think a lot of his supporters cheer him on when he does that. So one of the points you make is that this focus on identity that started on the left has now migrated over to the right in almost a more even more virulent form. Oh, in a terrible form. No, I mean, I would say 50 years ago, the average white person in the United States didn't think to himself or herself, I'm a white person, I'm part of this group here. Whereas now that has seeped into the rhetoric of the white nationalists and the alt-right that Whites are a victimized category, that they've been marginalized by all of these other minorities that have been pushing for advantages over them, and they have their rights as well. That's something we haven't heard, I think, previously. You know, the Republican Party is becoming the party of white people, and the Democratic Party is becoming the party of some progressive whites, but then all of the other minorities. And I think that's not a good position for the country to be in when the primary political divide corresponds to an ethnic and racial divide as well. So it's not good for the future of democracy. I think it's better, you know, if both parties actually stick to 
broad social policy issues that they can argue about rather than lining themselves up according to biological characteristics. Something like 80% of Southern whites in the 1930s voted for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal coalition because, you know, he was actually doing something for them. You say that activists came to see the old working class and their trade unions as a privileged stratum that demonstrated little sympathy for the plight of immigrants and racial minorities. Well, that's true. I mean, so there's a core of truth in that. So a lot of traditional labor unions were not that open to minorities and, you know, uh, other types of people. But you lose something, you know, by doing this, by simply categorizing an entire race as being privileged, because I think one of the big truths about social development in the United States in the last generation is that the fates of white people in the United States have gone in completely different directions. You know, the college-educated have been doing great, and those without a high school education have just been falling off a cliff. And to call them all one homogeneous privileged category, I think, is wrong. Back in 1992, you published a an article and later a book called The End of History, and people are still talking about it. It mm-hmm. had a huge impact. And the basic idea was that with the coming collapse of the Soviet Union, the longstanding tension between the liberal West and the communist countries was coming to an end, that driver of conflict, and that most of the world was going to coalesce around basically some form of liberal democracy and open markets. And and in fact, it was pretty prescient because that happened Mm -hmm. for a while. Well, more than a while. I think between 1970 and the mid-2000s, the world went from having about 35 democracies to having over 115. Uh, So it was the dominant form of government around the world. But ever since the mid-2000s, I think we've been going backwards. number of democracies has fallen. Authoritarian countries like Russia and China are much more self-confident. So you say we're having a global recession in democracy. That's right. So there's a lot of discontents. I think that globalization pushed this liberal world order very far, very fast, in terms of things like outsourcing, job loss, but also cultural change, because virtually every Western democracy now has a very substantial number of people that were born outside its territory, and that's, for many countries, that's something very new. And it's easy, perhaps, for a certain style of politics to prey on that. That's right. So we elected one president who's managed to very cleverly intuit the fears and resentments of a part of the United States population that really had not been terribly well represented by either political party. But this is going on in Hungary with Viktor Orban, you know, with the Law and Justice Party in Poland. It's not, it's not just a phenomenon limited to the United States. Right. It's something that's rooted really deep in human consciousness. In your book, you quote the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who he had a word for it. He used the French word, actually, resentiment. That's res- right. Resentment. Mm-hmm. Tell us why that's such a powerful force in human affairs. Well, I think there's a part of the human personality that craves respect, and it gets very angry. It's connected directly to emotions like shame, anger, guilt. When you don't get the respect you think you deserve, it makes you very angry, either on your behalf or on the behalf of people who are like you. And I think if you look at our politics, it's built around anger. You know, you don't get elected to office unless you are capitalizing on some form of anger. And frankly, a lot of our politics is sort of dignity politics, 
Uh, it's one group saying, look, you're not taking us seriously. You disregard our, our rights, and we demand a different kind of world. So how do politicians tap into this, this sense of resentment, this sense of somehow an, a disrespected identity? So in the United States, we had a huge financial crisis in 2008. We're now celebrating the 10th anniversary of it. In Europe, there is a huge crisis over the euro and then another one over migration after the Syrian civil war. All of these were, you know, they were major upheavals that were really created by elite policies. And as a result, you know, resentment of elites is not an irrational thing. We're still living with the consequences in many respects uh, of our financial crisis in 2008, where, you know, their savings were undercut. You know, a lot of them were kicked out of their homes. Uh, they're only gradually recovering, if at all, from that. So there's a lot of combustible material out there. It's not as if the anger just comes from nowhere. But every politician uses this. So Vladimir Putin has talked about the way that Russia was humiliated during the 2000s when it was weak uh, and that he's restored uh, it to a kind of dignity as a great power. Xi Jinping keeps talking about the 100 years of humiliation that China suffered at the hands of Western imperialism. So this kind of resentment you know, really runs everywhere. And sometimes they aren't necessarily wrong. I mean, people do have good reasons to be concerned about the bankers getting bailed out after the financial no, crisis, but not the homeowners. Absolutely. No, I think there's a core of justice that underlies almost all of these claims. The question is where you take it from there and whether the claim for justice becomes a claim for something more than justice. Some of the, the push for identity politics comes from people legitimately recognizing that there's areas where even the, the best liberal democracies sometimes have blind spots or they're not doing a good enough job, and including the United States. What are some of those? Well, liberal democracy recognizes you as a generic human being, and that's why you have rights as a, as a citizen. But for many people, that's not enough because they feel that uh, they're also specific ways in which their dignity is not being recognized, being member of a group, and particularly a group that's been marginalized historically. So African Americans, women, gays and lesbians, uh, all of these groups in the past did not receive either legal or social recognition of their equal status, and those have led to demands you know, for recognition of their particular experiences and identities. You talk about why dignity is such an important part of this. It runs counter to the old economic model that people basically enhance their self-interest in, in an economic way. But in fact, there, there's a, a very personal spiritual side to this. And you talk in the fight for gay marriage. That's right. You know, getting rights as partners, having all the same rights as married people, that wasn't good enough and for very understandable reasons. It's absolutely a dignity issue. So if you just had a civil union that preserved all your legal rights of inheritance and survivorship and so forth, you know, that satisfies the economic dimension, but it says but we still think that your union is not of equal worth to a man and a woman being married. And that's really what I think drove the gay marriage movement. It's a dignity issue and fundamentally not an economic rights issue. And it may also be why that, that movement was successful so quickly, because I think most people can appreciate that why that's important. I think that's, uh, that's right. It's, it's remarkable how quickly this was accepted as a 
you know, as an intrinsic element of, of equal dignity. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. Richard is not here. He's happily in Amsterdam, probably riding a bicycle somewhere <laughs> as we do this interview. But he will be back in the final segment to discuss our conversation. We're talking with Francis Fukuyama about his new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity, and the Politics of Resentment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to circle back to the topic we never seem to be able to get too far away from when that is our current president. When did you see him on the campaign trail and think, oh, I've seen this before. I know what's happening here. I thought the creepiest moment for me was when he gave his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in the summer of 2016. Uh, He had this line where he said, I alone understand your problems and I alone can fix them. Now, you really have to go back to someone like Mussolini to hear that kind of rhetoric you know it's it's classic populist demagogy that i have this direct uh, way of intuiting what you believe and i'm the only one that understands you and i i mean first of all it was totally implausible that this real estate developer actually really understood anything about problems and how to fix them but but the rhetoric was was one of of a perfect demagogue and it seemed to me at that point you know, I said to myself, we're really in trouble if this guy actually becomes president. You know, people often say, well, didn't people realize he's a rich developer? But stylistically, he owed a lot more to the World Wrestling Federation That's right. than he does to the world of high finance or, or politics. Well, his problem actually is that he never ran anything other than a large family business. He never had to report to a board of directors or shareholders uh, to any kind of real bureaucratic structure. And I think that's the way he's taken to trying to run the American government. But it turns out that, you know, the American government is the largest organization in the world and you can't do things that way. It seems like part of Trump's appeal is is something that comes up a lot in these movements, which is a kind of nostalgia, maybe a nostalgia for a past that never really was. Well, uh, and that's where the racial part of it comes in, because, you know, quite frankly, I think he's a racist. You know, that record, uh, I think, has suffused a lot of the things that he's done as president and explains, you know, why he's been so divisive. You say that the emphasis on identity politics is also a threat to free speech. Why? 
Well, this is something that you see on college campuses increasingly where uh, you don't want to just debate somebody with different opinions or that comes from a different group that you don't approve of. You actually want to shut them down. And, uh, and then, you know, the conservatives take advantage of this. So you get these provocateurs like Richard Spencer that, you know, or Ann Coulter that actually want to be shut down so that they can make a big deal out of it. And that, you so know, they can claim that 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 treasured victims. That's status. right. They want to be victims as well. So our show is about solutions, and but these are deep cultural trends that really go back. And many, you know, people are being inculcated into this this identity worldview from childhood. How do we go about starting to change it? Well, the nice thing about identity is, in fact, it's not necessarily based on biology. It's something that can be shaped by leaders, by politicians, by the way we teach our children, by parents. Uh, and I think that rather than focusing on ever narrower uh, social identities, we need to have more integrative ones. And that's why I think having a strong American national identity is something that's important. And it's not something that's been emphasized terribly much. In fact, it's been somewhat criticized. It's been, it's been criticized as being chauvinistic you know, and, and based on patriarchy and racism and so forth. But there is also a progressive story that you can tell about the United States, that it was born in a certain commitment to freedom and equality, that we've never fully lived up to it, but that over the years we've done probably better than most other societies in actually making that a reality for fellow citizens. And I think that's that kind of liberal, open identity, civic, creedal identity that we need to recultivate. And what you're describing, this idea that America is a progress towards, towards freedom and dignity for everybody, that's the American creed? I think it's got to be something like that. You know, I mean, I, l let me refer to my own experience. Right? My grandfather was born in Japan, came as an immigrant to the United States, I never learned Japanese. I grew up in New York where there wasn't an Asian-American community, but I never spent any time thinking of myself as an Asian-American or a Japanese-American. You know, I said, I'm just an American. And the nice thing about America, you know, you couldn't say that in Japan if you're not racially Japanese. You couldn't say I'm Japanese. Even after several generations. Yeah, right. If you're a white person, you just can't yeah. do that. But in the United States, you can. In the United States, you know, I, I didn't feel that being racially different was a disadvantage uh, at all, and I think that's a great thing. That's a great thing about the United States, and that's what it means to have your identity rooted in a set of beliefs rather than an ethnicity. That used to be kind of the, your basic middle school civics. Mm -hmm. How do we get back to that? Well, for one thing, you can actually start teaching civics again, which I think has gone into a lot of uh, uh, disuse uh, in, in, in schools, and maybe now that there actually is this threat you know, to the Constitution and to basic American institutions, people realize that if you don't teach people about what, you know, checks and balances mean or what their constitutional rights are, then they're not going to be so vigilant in, uh, in defending them. And you also s suggest that maybe we should consider bringing back some kind of national service. Uh, you know, this may be a pipe dream, but it does seem to me that uh, a national service would remind people that they're not just rights-bearing citizens that are always getting stuff from the government, but they're also actively engaged people that owe their country something in terms of their own lives, 
the other thing that's great, you know, that the military does is it actually forces people of different geographies and social classes to mix with one another. And unfortunately, very few of our institutions do that anymore. You've criticized um, some of the um, European countries for, you know, dealing with their large groups of fairly unassimilated immigrants in exactly the wrong way. For example, having separate schooling, public schooling systems for Mm -hmm. people of different religions. Yeah, that's a, a problem in a place like Holland, where historically the Protestants and Catholics and secular people all had their separate political parties, newspapers, and schools. But they did share basically the same historical memory. And then a lot of Muslims started arriving. And so it made sense for Muslims to go to their own schools. And so now I think that's become a barrier to the integration of Muslims into the broader uh, Dutch society. Immigration is one of those really tough issues mm-hmm. that's driving a lot of the intensity on these issues on, on both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe some of the most controversial part of your book with some readers might be the fact that you think critics of immigration are over the top in some of their criticisms but may have a point in other areas. Well, I think that you have to understand that there's a lot of different motives and it's simply not the case that everybody that's skeptical of our current immigration system is a racist or a xenophobe. Uh, I think a significant number of people don't like the fact that we don't control our borders and that there's a lot of illegal immigration. And I think that if you want to really uh, prick this, uh, this boil of, of you know, right-wing populism, you've got to split those people off from the people that are the genuine racists. But democratic societies do have to be able to control who's a member of their society. So as I'm going through your book, it strikes me that your ultimate point about our style of liberal democracy is, is a pretty radical one today, and that is that uh, liberal democracies are better, and we shouldn't be afraid to say so. Uh, that's absolutely correct. I think there's been... Uh you know, a kind of overreaction to this populist upsurge to say, oh, yeah, you know, globalization and all of these things were terrible and we need to somehow roll them back. I think there needs to be a, you know, a basic defense of a tolerant, open society, an open, tolerant, diverse society. But we also have to remember that that uh, shouldn't get carried to extremes. We need common citizenship. We need common values. You're not saying that project of liberal democracy is finished, and there's still progress to be made, and you're an advocate for certain kinds of, of federal policies that, that are inclusive. And you look back to the controversial Obamacare bill as, as one of those. I think that that's a perfect example of a good social policy. It's not racially or ethnically targeted. It includes a lot of beneficiaries of all genders, races, ethnicities, and it does something really substantive to help their lives. And I think if we could focus, you know, if the left can refocus on making something like the Affordable Care Act actually work and really cover everybody, that would be a great accomplishment. And everything has to be held in a, in a, in a balance. Thank you, Francis Fukuyama. Thank you very much. So, Richard, while you were 
gallivanting around Amsterdam on your, on your, my your bike, on your bicycle, my rental bike, yeah. and uh, stopping in in certain types of cafes, no and, doubt. And nearly crashing into canals and other cyclists. We were, Miranda and I were hard at work uh, recording this interview with Fukuyama. You've had a chance to review it. What do you think? I was really impressed by his arguments. And this point that he's making, that in the past, we've usually felt that, that people are motivated in their behavior by either a desire, an economic desire, to, to move forward and further their own economic self-interest, or our decisions are the result of impulses. Whereas he's positing this third way, which is that we're also deeply influenced by our desire for respect, um, our, our need for dignity. Um, and sometimes that's, that leads to resentment. Right, but let's be clear. One of the great accomplishments of modern civilization is to develop the idea that everyone is entitled to dignity and respect. You want to make sure, and he's, he is on pretty nuanced ground here, you want to make sure that we don't say focus on identity automatically leads to these bad effects, but it's the resentment part. That's where the trouble starts. One of the most positive outcomes of identity politics is the civil rights movement. I would also argue that the growth of the Me Too movement over the past year and a half has also been positive in promoting and also leading to many more women standing for public office in the United States. That's a positive result of identity politics, but where it gets into trouble is when it promotes resentment. I'm going to push back. I think his point is there's identity and then there's identity politics. And the civil rights movement's successes were not so much achieved by creating a a political identity for a minority, but saying, isn't everyone entitled to the same rights? Same thing with gay marriage. It wasn't gay people are special and very different and need all kinds of special accommodations. It was like, why can't we have the same rights and respect that everyone else has? That was a very powerful argument. When identity turns into politics, per se, where you identify your political affiliation by your racial group, sexual orientation, or some other factor, some biological factor, rather than your broader concerns uh, as a citizen of the country, I think that's where he's saying the trouble starts. But what's interesting that, that Fukuyama recognizes is we like to be part of groups that we can sort of understand that we feel close to. That's why he stresses that a national identity, this creedal identity, as he calls it, is a positive thing. We don't want to eliminate identity. We don't want to eliminate a sense of belonging, but we want to extend it to the broadest group that can be maintained in a stable way. And he sees that as as some definition of, of the nation, that we're in this together instead of a nation being a whole collection of little slivers of competing minorities who all have to fight each other to succeed. We're in this together. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. If you want to find out more about other shows, go to howdowefixit.me. That's our website. And this show is a production of Davies Content. Find out more at daviescontent.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.